Welcome to the Thrive Podcast with Cooper Klein and Lauren Fuchs. We engage in meaningful discussions with psychologists, neuroscientists, and a variety of well-being specialists. We hope to erase the stigma surrounding mental health, provide educational resources and self-care tools, and inspire a generation of mental health advocates. Welcome to our podcast. Just as a reminder, the information included in this podcast is for educational purposes only. This is not intended to be a substitute for professional care. If you feel that you need more assistance or support, please visit thethriveinitiative.org for resources and referrals. Gia Marson is a licensed psychologist with private practices in Santa Monica and Malibu, California. Marson is the psychologist consultant to the University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA, Adolescent and Young Adult Medicine Nourish for Life Eating Disorders Program. She is also an integrative health coach trained by Duke Integrative Medicine and serves as clinical director for the Breaking the Chains Foundation. Marson has spent the last two decades helping clients reach their whole health goals by conducting trainings, teaching, and providing clinical supervision. She also served as director of the UCLA CLAPS Eating Disorder Program, a psychologist on the UCLA Athletic Care Committee, and as a clinician at the Renfrew Center's Intensive Outpatient Program and the Monte Nido Treatment Center's Residential Program. We are so excited to have her with us here today. So just starting off, how did you get into this field and what different spaces have you been engaged in throughout your career? First of all, thank you guys for caring about mental health in your community and doing this podcast and getting different voices out there. It's so impressive and exciting and inspiring, actually. Um, I got into eating disorders when I was in graduate school. I was getting my doctorate in psychology and um, two of my cousins who were both about 10 years younger than I am developed eating disorders. So I start, and I didn't really know anything about them. So I started reading everything I could on eating disorders because I was so confused because in my opinion, they were perfect, even though no one should try to be perfect. <laughs> I mean, they were loved and loving and smart and kind, and they had families that cared about them and supported them. And they were, you know, they were able-bodied and I, I didn't understand they had friends, like how could this happen to them? And I, that's when I realized if it could happen to them, it could happen to anybody. And that the stigma really made, like really got in the way of understanding what the illnesses are about, because it seemed like, oh, there, there must be some big pathological reason in that family or with that person. And it's really sort of random because of genetics, you know, who will land in terms of like having an eating disorder and who won't. Um, and so once I got into it, I couldn't, I, I just got more and more into it. I wrote most of my papers and my doctoral dissertation on eating disorders and then um, worked at the Renfrew Center, um, their IOP and the Montanito residential programs. And I learned a lot in those because those higher level of care, higher levels of care where people have to really commit like 15 hours a week or even live there 
um, you know, you really see people who have to prioritize their health about everything. Um, so that was helpful to kind of see what courage it takes to do that kind of treatment and also what um, you can accomplish in those kind of settings. So, and then I worked in college counseling center, which was a little bit different because, uh, you know, someone's in college when they're getting treatment. So they're a little bit um, more able to juggle things at the same time. So that's kind of my, my path. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for sharing um, how you got into this field. Um, and I wanted to ask, what are some of the most common and harmful misconceptions surrounding eating disorders? You mentioned the stigma surrounding eating disorders, and I wanted to start there. I think the stigma is really one of the biggest problems because we leave out so many groups of people because of stigma. And also, um, I think there's this idea that because eating disorders often start with somebody restricting their food and dieting, there's this idea like they brought it on themselves or they want it or, and it isn't that simple because not everybody who diets because dieting is pretty normal in our culture, right. Or starts working out to get more fit or whatever. Not everybody develops an eating disorder and that's because of genetics. So I would say that we need to stop blaming people who have eating disorders. I think it's a lot more like type one diabetes, like somebody eats sugar, and their body can't, you know, break it down and they can't, you know, they, they need medicine to be able to like handle that. Um, it's a lot closer to something like that because it's not, it's not just a diet gone wrong. It's a diet. It start, might start with a diet or, um, fitness program, but then it, you know, it just turns into someone who can't stop it because then they develop the mental illness part of it. So I would say that's a big stigma and it keeps I think unfortunately keeps our community from being nearly as compassionate as we should be um, because one person dies every hour from this illness, these illnesses. And so that's the other misconception is that, um, you know, that it's not a big deal. People can just stop when they want to just, you know, it's, it's just like, like I've never had an eating disorder. So if I were to go on a diet, I could just stop dieting and probably would pretty quickly because I'd be annoyed by it and stressed out. But someone who has the genetics for an eating disorder may not be able to stop it. So, you know, we really need compassion in these spaces. And then the other part of stigma that I think is important um, is the idea that a lot of men and boys are left out of this uh, conversation. And if right now the estimate is like 30 million people who are in the US right now will develop an eating disorder at some point in their lives, and 10 million of those will be male. So it isn't, it isn't a female illness. It's not, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not a gendered illness any of the eating disorders. So I think that's really important. Those are the main pieces of stigma that I think get in the way of like compassion and, and treatment. Yeah, I completely agree. And another one that I've seen too is, um, especially with anorexia, this idea that like only a certain, a, a person who looks a certain type of way could possibly have 
anorexia. Like you must get to a certain weight to actually, you know, mm-hmm. qualify as, you know, being diagnosed with anorexia, which obviously is not true. And many different body types, um, it, you know, it doesn't limit or it doesn't mm-hmm. make someone less, you know, anorexic if they have been diagnosed with yeah. the disorder. So I don't know. I think that's one that I've seen too. I remember we were talking about this the other day, how there's this misconception. I like to say eating disorders don't really have a set look. It's not a certain person or a certain body type. It's really, it's a mental illness just as much as, you know, it affects your physical health. It's also a lot going on that you can't see. And I guess one thing I wanted to kind of touch on maybe a little more was this, I think a big misconception is you know, having eating disorder is not a choice. And a lot of times I think people trivialize and simplify the issue into, well, you dieted and now you're here, you just need to stop and go the other way. How do you think that this misconception harms people who are trying to recover when people around them are kind of pressuring them to recover in an instant when it's really more of a process? That's such a good question. It is, it is such a process and it's a process that can take years really. Um, you know, even if somebody gets, um, to a point where they're symptom free, they're not engaging in eating disorder behaviors anymore. They might still be dealing with the thoughts or negative body image and those take longer. Right. And so even if physiologically, they've kind of re-regulated their intake and are kind of, you know, healthier from that point of view, all the healing parts take quite some time. And so it's, it's really unfortunate to kind of think of it as a timeline, because it's, it's like anything in life we want to heal from even a broken heart, which seems like, you know, we should be able to get over pretty quickly, right? Of course we don't. And this is physical and it's an illness. And so if it's just like, think, I wish people would kind of think about what it's taken them to get over anything they've really loved or had a hard time getting rid of because the mental illness of an eating disorder makes it that hard to get rid of this, whether you want it or not you know? Yeah. And I think a lot of times people really don't understand the psychological component Mm -hmm. to it. And I see, I I think that's another misconception that it's solely just a physical illness. Um, Mm -hmm. so yeah, would you mind just talking about what kind of happens on a psychological level when someone has an eating disorder? Because I think there's not a lot of awareness on that side of things. Sure. There's, I mean, there's, I would say there's a big difference between whether somebody has a restrictive eating disorder like anorexia nervosa versus binge eating disorder or bulimia nervosa, because the kind of psychological piece is so different. So if we were to talk about it with those three um, lenses in mind for anorexia nervosa, it's, 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 I would say it's the toughest to recover from because you want to keep it. That's the defining part of anorexia that's different from every other mental illness that exists. Depression, alcoholism, everything else people want to get better from. 
but anorexia nervosa, it tells you you want to keep this thing and that everybody else is wrong and trying to make you fat or they're lying to you and they're distorting things and they're not telling you the truth. So the first part for anorexia nervosa is developing a trust circle kind of with somebody who's dealing with it because they have to be able to trust people more than what their own brain is telling them. And that's a pretty scary thing to ask a smart person to do. Um, And almost every, I mean, everybody I've worked with has been smart. So we're asking them to kind of take this leap of faith that their brain is telling them the wrong thing and to go against what their brain is telling them for binge eating disorder and um, bulimia nervosa. It's more, I would say the, the biggest part of it is, is the shame because our culture is so fixated on um, being very controlled with food and not ever eating more than we think we should. And so the shame that comes with binge eating or bulimia is just so tough. So I would say like, if those are in one category and then anorexia is in another, there's kind of different um, things that are going on inside the mind that make it so tough. I think that's completely right. You know, with the feeling of, with anorexia of not wanting to let it go. Um, but I also think I just wanted to add that you made a really um, good point of say, referring to it as it, like it doesn't want to stop and not you. Yeah. Because- it's telling you, you need to keep it. And I think one thing that was really hard in my recovery process was finding out that these thoughts I was having weren't necessarily coming from me. It was coming from a mental illness. And, you know, as someone who considers themselves smart, like you say, you work with smart people, even within our society with how we value thinness and dieting and so-called willpower, you think you're doing the right thing. You think you're doing the smart thing. And then all of a sudden you you're being told, no, like this has all been like wrong. Your brain is not telling you to do something that's healthy for you. And I think that's the biggest leap in the beginning is realizing I've, I've, I have this wrong. Um, and especially, I mean, in my experience being someone who is very much like a perfectionist nature, I was very, um, determined to just be disciplined in everything that mm -hmm. I did. And when it came to having an eating disorder was the same for that, you know, Mm -hmm. listening to the eating disorder voice and continuing to restrict and, you know, Mm -hmm. exercise those disordered behaviors, but then being told that I couldn't, Mm -hmm. you know, be disciplined. And then I, I mean, actually disciplined in just another way, I guess is a better way to think about it, but, um, you know, being motivated to get better, but, it was hard. It's almost like, I think of it as having like the devil and angel on your shoulders, hearing these two very um, contradictory messages and really having to make the conscious choice every single day, multiple times a day to listen to the one that, you know, is actually scarier because it's so, you know, the voice that wants to get better telling you to get better, but it's at that point, so unknown because you've only been Mm -hmm. listening and hearing the other voice for so long. Yeah. I think recovery was the, at the beginning of recovery was one of the first times where I really strongly felt cognitive dissonance of half of me just really wanting to hold on. And then the other half of me wanting to get better and having to, like you said, um, 
consciously choose to continue on the path of recovery. And I think the next thing we wanted to discuss was the danger of glorifying eating disorders and how the media's portrayal of eating disorders, restrictive eating and dieting aren't realistic and how they're harming people's perception. Can I turn this on you guys first and then I'll respond to it because you're living it, right? Like you're at the exact age where all this is targeting you. So what is it like to be in your lives right now and to be dealing with this on a day-to-day basis, talking to friends, like how powerful is it? Or is it like you just kind of ignore it and it's not a big deal? Like, oh, the, all the professionals are making a big deal, but it's, we know how to deal with it. You know, I don't know. No, It's everywhere. It's yeah. everywhere. I mean, personally, I think the triggers are everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a point where you, you know, before I was actually fully like entrenched in my eating disorder, mm-hmm. I was really unaware of it. I, mm-hmm. I that's all I was really used to, like these ideas of dieting and cutting out entire food groups and exercising X amount every day. And all of these things just seemed like a given to me. You know, it wasn't something that I actually questioned or thought like who, who's actually creating these messages and ideas? What is their legitimacy? Do they have any right to be, you know, telling people what to do when it comes to their bodies what they're eating, um, how they're living their lives. Um, I had no consideration of it being all like a, a profiting scheme, you know, (laughs) like the diet industry wanting to make money off of my insecurities as well as Mm -hmm. every other teenager and, you know, their insecurities, I fully bought into it. And, um, I think it ties in a lot to like consumer culture and wanting to just constantly improve oneself and holding Mm -hmm. up these, for me, it was Instagram, Instagram Mm -hmm. influencers and thinking Mm -hmm. that they were living, you know, the life that I wanted to live. And that was because they did this. And that was because Mm -hmm. they had this. And I, I think instead of actually working on the relationship with myself and my self-esteem because that that takes a lot of work and a lot of time and dedication Mm -hmm. um and it's hard I looked for you know momentary solutions just to kind of like cover up my insecurities mask them almost like just putting a band-aid on the situation but not actually going to the root cause of what's occurring in terms of you know low self-esteem or the way that you perceive yourself and yeah, I, I always look to just these solutions that seemed like they could remove all my issues when, of course, they only led to more. Yeah, I like the way you put that, um, how it kind of ties to consumer culture, because I think for me, learning about the diet industry being a billion dollar industry and how it functions solely by making us feel insecure, it was just revelatory for me. And I think they've I say they, I don't really know who they is, the dieting industry, I guess, have kind of made a product out of this ideal, societal ideal of an unattainable body. And the product they're selling is their diets and their plans. And you can never reach this body because then you're not going to be buying what they're selling. Um, 
and just kind of speaking more to what we experience on a day-to-day basis, even just scrolling through TikTok and seeing, you know, people talking about like, do this, you have to do this to get this body. I was telling Lauren, I saw this horrible video about this woman who's like, you should just eat grapes for two weeks. And I was sitting there and I was like, I'm in recovery now. And I can just say, this is BS. And people in the comments were like, what's the scientific evidence? Where's the peer reviewed stuff? And she's like, no, 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 this is just my experience. But if I had seen that, you know, three years ago, I fully would have been like, oh my gosh, I have to go to the grocery store. I have to get grapes. Like I have to, I have to do this. And it was just so strange to me to think, you know, how people see this and with an eating disorder, you see that and you're like, okay, like that's factual. I should be doing that. And now that I'm in recovery, I see that. And I go, that is the strangest thing I have ever seen, but it's stuff like that all the time. And it's, it's interesting too, because I think some of the time I have that, you know, revelation that Cooper was describing of like, this is absurd. There's no way this is that this is correct. But then there are other times when the eating disorder voice, you know, kind of picks at it and tries to convince me that that's actually right. And maybe I should try that. And maybe, you know, this diet is different than all the others and it won't, it isn't actually bad for you and things like that. And I mean, I don't know, again, it's just all around us. One of the restaurants near our school, um, walking distance away from our school has these posters up all around and advertising their weight loss soup and their, you know, five day cleanses that are, you know, strictly just celery juice. I think it's so difficult living in Los Angeles because here, you know, wellness culture and dieting industry, all, all those things are very prominent and, um, all of the, all of the trends, I feel like they hit us first. I hate that store with a passion. Yeah. I remember I I started like walking past that store every day at 12 years old. And, you know, you start to internalize that. Um, and it's, you know, now I look at it and like, that is the most toxic stuff I've ever seen. And I like see the 12 year old middle schoolers walking by. I'm like, close your eyes. Don't look like, don't listen to them. They're, they're, they're wrong. Um, but it's just, it's wild to so think about hard. that. Now we turn it back to you. Sorry. We went on like a little. No, that's so helpful. I mean, you're right. You guys are bombarded. And I think, you know, the more time you spend on social media, the more bombarded you are. Right. And even, you know, to do homework, you have to have your internet on. Right. So, and things are going to pop up and like, there's no avoiding it because the ads are on all the sites and, you know, so even the things we try to make very pure, like do homework on the computer, it it isn't because it's infiltrated by these, you know, products that are buying space on sites where they know teenagers are. And um, the interesting thing and the exciting thing about the teenage brain is that it wants novelty. It wants to be around, like your brains want to try things and do things differently. And, you know, you're in identity formation. So you're trying to figure out who you are. So it kind of plays on that because it's like, oh, are you going to be a person who just eats grapes, you know? And then your brain being an adolescent brain and like looking for identity formation is like, maybe I am, you know? And then novelty, it's like, well, I haven't done that. Maybe I should try that. So it's like it kind of, the advertisers are so smart. They know what your brains are up to at this point in your life. And they know how to play on it. Obviously, like the older you get and your brain gets more um, uh, 
pruned and stops like creating all those, you know, branches and kind of like simplifies a little bit. Um, and it's not as exciting. And so it's about not as great, but it's also, it does keep you a little bit, maybe more protected later, um, which is probably why so much is targeted at you guys and your ages. And it's, it's just, it's so scary. And, you know, there's all this stuff about media literacy and we need to teach media literacy, but nobody who can, who's teaching media literacy knows what it's like to be your age and going through this. It's changing so fast. You are the experts. Like, that's what I want you to know. That's why I turned this question of all the questions back on you because you are the actual experts yeah. in five years. You won't be as expert as you are now. You'll still be experts, but it's it's just, it all changes so fast. So we need to be in these kind of conversations where you're saying what you see, what's bothering you and what's, you know, causing you to question your own self-esteem and self-worth. And, and then there's these diets now that are the non-diet diets, right? Mm -hmm. Like intermittent fasting and Noom and Weight Watchers that yeah. target like, free foods, the no point foods and the using CBT, which CBT is a very effective psychological tool, but Noom uses it to help people diet, um, which is a twist, <laughs> a twist on taking something good and turning it around. And then intermittent fasting, like all these new, the new lingo is it's a, not a diet right? Because we, oh, yeah. we decided diets are bad. We know that now and that they fail. So now people say this isn't a diet. They just, they give you a diet and they've just gotten really sneaky with it. Oh, too. Yeah. Yeah. And all this language. Around they like put a bunch of like yeah. nice fluffy language around it, make uh, it feel good, but it's still a diet. And the other thing is too, you know, it can be whatever, like take whatever form, but like you were saying, the people who have the predisposition for Mm -hmm. genetic predisposition for an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if it's Weight Watchers or Noom or whatever it is, whatever you're calling it, like that can lead to a really horrible place. And for some people it may not as well, but yeah. For most people it won't, but for the people it does, it it's life-threatening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it's literally going to threaten their lives. So it's not okay mm -hmm. to be tricking people into dieting and thinking it's a good thing because we don't know who's at risk till we know. Yeah. And then they already have the illness. And we know now this is another like part of the stigma, I think, is that it's only, so we were talking about it's only physical and then it's also psychological, but it's also more physical than we ever knew because a few years ago, this huge genome-wide study showed that there's a metabolic component to anorexia nervosa, which means metabolically some kind of change takes place once the illness takes hold. Their literally body is responding to food and um, any kind of fuel they're getting differently than a healthy body. So there is it. There's a conversation about changing the description to a psycho metabo Ill disorder or illness, like, because they want to 
you know, really clarify that there's a metabolic component where somebody's body is just like running through food. It's just burning through it. And they want to move all the time. And that that isn't just psychological. There's a literal metabolic piece that's making you want to do that when you have that illness. Yeah. And the other thing I wanted to talk about in terms of, you know, the media and how eating disorders are glorified was how it's featured in um, film and TV, which is something that I've, I mean, really come to realize a lot recently. Um, Watching, even watching shows like in the night that took place in the nineties, hearing the comments that are Mm -hmm. extremely toxic surrounding body image and restrictive eating and things like that. And those were things that I would never have noticed before actually starting to go through recovery. But now every single time, and I swear it's in every single TV show, no matter how liberal it is, just because they need to to talk about something relating to body image or Mm -hmm. something triggering about you know, restrictive eating or dieting or something like that, but it's really problematic because I've seen it in everything. Yeah. And I think the same thing that you were saying, it's like, I now notice it. And I also notice this has nothing to do with the plot. There is no character arc here. This is just like, this is the same as, you know, saying, Hey, hi, hello. You start talking about dieting in a show. And I'm like, why, why are we doing this? (laughs) Um, Media is not only like inserting some of these ideas, but it's reflecting also what we're already doing in our communities. So this happens, I'm sure with your friends. And yeah, I mean, it happens at every age where people will get together and be like, Oh, you look great. You lost weight or you look great. You've been working out. And it's like, why do we comment on bodies? Mm -hmm. I don't understand it. I don't care what someone's body looks like when I haven't seen them for a long time, I care about how they are, what they've been up to, how they're doing, what their life life is or lives are like, you know, but for some reason we still want to get into those conversations. So I think in that way, TV shows also are trying to sort of reflect the norm and seem like you're really sitting around the table with people. Right. Because it is realistic. No, absolutely. It's, it becomes kind of part of our small talk of when we have nothing else to talk about, that's where we Mm -hmm. turn. And it's so weird because when I was, you know, going through, well, going through recovery and talking with, um, um, a professional in the field, they were saying that Mm -hmm. like, if you, how do you choose your friends? Is it based on what they look like, their body, like their weight, how much they exercise, what they eat, things like that. And the answer was so obvious to me. Absolutely not. I am friends with people because of their character and the kind of friend that they are to me. And why do we project so much? Why do we pay so much attention and put so much? I don't even think it is genuine value. I think it's Mm -hmm. just, I don't know what you would call it, but onto people's bodies. And I don't know, it's bizarre to me. I think the next thing we wanted to discuss was how social media can really play a role in triggering people who are recovering from eating disorders or even providing, I guess, the images of an idealized body type that drive people towards um, disordered behaviors. So I was just wondering your thoughts about how you've seen in general social media impacting people um, who struggle with eating disorders. And there's a lot of evidence now that 
the more time you spend on social media sites, especially if what you're doing is comparing yourself to other people, the more um, risky it is. And we know that there's now a lot of research behind that in almost every form of social media that targets adolescents, especially. So it's, it's risky. And I think we haven't, we haven't begun to kind of curate social media as consumers the way we need to. So, you know, if you're watching TV, you can turn the channel, you just click, turn the channel, right? You're kind of curating, you have your favorites, whatever, but on social media, anything can pop up and then it's just there. You, you don't, you're not necessarily prepared for a story or an image or a conversation that's going to come up. And so I think we have to like start to be more careful about what we open ourselves up to, because once something goes in our brain, it's there and we either have to actively tell ourselves it's not true or we're not going to listen to that because our brain, when it takes in information, it kind of believes what it's getting unless we tell it, tell ourselves not to believe it. So it's almost like if you're, you know, driving down Sunset Boulevard and you see a bunch of, uh, you know, big billboards, you don't just like stop your car and go grab a beer because there's a beer billboard. But with social media, there's some way that we get really entrenched in believing that it's something that goes along with what we already think is acceptable. And so we make more and more concessions. And then the more concessions you make toward anything, the more you believe it's part of you and you are, you have a harder time, you know, fighting up against it. So I, I really think curating social media is the answer and not, you know, we don't, we wouldn't walk down a block where somebody is bullying us and, you know, throwing rocks at us when we walk down the block, but yet we will go onto social media apps that are basically the same thing. It's basically being, you're walking down the block and someone's throwing rocks at you, but you still go down that block, you know? Um, And somehow we have to start making the connection that we don't have to walk down that block anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's super hard because there's a real competitive aspect to it when it comes to trends and things kind of taking off and wanting to be the first to hop on it and, you know, introduce it to other people, which obviously you never really know what you're fully getting into. So I also just think you, you never really understand the full story of what's going on. Um, so that's, that's been really, I mean, in my past experience, it's been hard. Um, because like you said, you can't unsee these things. And once you start practicing them, you know, they become habits and it's hard to undo those things. Um, well, and to, to that point that, you know, they're on TV, like at least, you know, a commercial is a commercial, but with influencers, you don't even know products they're using that they're getting paid to use it. They're endorsers, you know, they're be- being paid. Um, they're being given something for uh, passive advertising, basically. And so it's a lot more complex. Like if you build a relationship with someone on social media, you know, by you like what they talk about or whatever, you kind of believe them, you trust them, they earn your trust. 
Then when they use a product that they might be getting paid to use, you believe them. And then they get taken down a road where they start getting more money for, you know, now they're selling diet products or products that, you know, somehow lead to like negative body image or um, social comparisons. And then, you know, all of a sudden this person you trusted, you think they're just telling you something that's working for them, but they're not, they're telling you something they're getting paid to tell you. And so the, the passivity of all of that and the invisibility of all that, I think is another big problem that we haven't tackled. Yeah. I think that's a big issue is as consumers of social media, I feel like oftentimes teenagers are very passive about what's coming up in front of them. And I think we have to find a way, not sure how, to more actively curate our feeds and what we want to be seeing and what is healthy for us to be seeing. Have you seen any correlation between um, social media and an increase in, you know, as social media has become more expansive and taken on so many different forms? Have you seen an increase in, um, I guess, the numbers of teenagers who are diagnosed with eating disorders? Um, definitely there is an increase in eating disorders in the last 10 years. So to be specific, it's starting younger and younger too. under 12 year old has the, the instances of hospitalization for an eating disorder has risen over a hundred percent, over a hundred percent in 10 years. That's super alarming. This, these are under 12 year olds. And so that's what's coming, right? Like that's the wave we're facing. It's already awful now for teenagers. And I would say like subclinical eating disorders where people maybe have some of the symptoms, but not all of them, or they're not seeking help yet, um, have also risen but we're seeing like alarming, alarming rates when the social media is kids are being exposed and then they're going to be, you know, entering teenager years where usually is when you see the onset of an eating disorder is usually between 12 and 20, but now we're seeing hospitalizations under 12 skyrocketing. So, and I can just say anecdotally, in, in my practice and the practices of people I know who treat people with eating disorders that uh, everybody's pretty full and it's very hard to find providers for people. And if you need to get somebody into residential treatment or intensive outpatient, it's weeks of waiting. Um, it's really backed up. There's a real backlog because of how, and I, and I do think it is social media. I don't think there's any question about that. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. And kind of switching gears. Um, I think the next thing we want to talk about is misconceptions surrounding eating disorder recovery. Um, and oftentimes people are like, people oversimplify the process of recovering from an eating disorder. So why is recovery so much more than just having to eat more again? So for anorexia nervosa, it's 
having to eat more until your body reaches homeostasis, which our bodies always want to reach. So, you know, when you're eating enough, finally, then your mind will stop obsessing about food in the same way. But that's very hard to convince someone of because they think the more they eat, the more their mind will obsess. But actually, it's quite the opposite once you get there, um, because your brain isn't trying to get you to go find food because it's starving. So it calms down and you can think about other things. And, and then for bulimia nervosa and binge eating disorder, it's sort of that impulsivity, learning to not eat always when you want to not always follow an urge to eat and not engage in compensation, like purging or laxatives or exercise or whatever to get rid of calories or whatever. Um, so there's all those right behavioral pieces that have to happen. And then it's the work of who am I? Who am I? You know, who am I going to be in a healthy body? Am I, am I, you know, it's a lot more complicated, right? You guys were talking about this earlier. It's a lot easier to just say, I'm going to eat grapes for two weeks. You're done. Like, you know, a bow is tied on that package and you know exactly who you are. You're the person who does that. But once you're he healed, like behaviorally, you still have to answer, who am I? Who do I want to love? Who, what do I want to learn? Who do I want to be? You know, what, what do I feel? You have to deal with your emotions because a lot of times eating disorders, they, you know, they help manage emotions and it works. Unfortunately, it works. So like if you are anxious and you have anorexia and you don't eat, you're going to feel better. I won't feel better if I don't eat if I'm anxious because I don't have an eating disorder. But for people with anorexia, a lot of times like restricting does work to help with the anxiety of emotions. So you have to be able to deal with emotions, learn how to deal with emotions and then um, also to deal with your thoughts, because we're having, you know, like 6,000 thoughts a day. And so, again, talking about curating, that's another place we have to curate. We have to curate our thoughts and figure out which ones take us where we want to go and which ones are healthy, you know, because we get to choose which thoughts we really hold on to. And we have to start choosing. Yeah. In recovery, people have to start choosing. And it's so hard because especially, um, you know, coming out of an eating disorder and recovering from it, I remember I, and it's still, I have to remind myself every day that I control my thoughts. My thoughts don't control me, mm -hmm. which is something that I've thought for years and no one's really explained that to me. I've always thought that mm -hmm. they kind of just flood my mind and like have free reign up there, but that's not the truth we do, we can make decisions and especially in terms of which ones we want to listen to. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you bring up a really great point about recovery that I think someone for people who haven't, you know, been in this field or experienced an eating disorder, um, they don't, I think, understand how big of a piece of your identity it becomes, um, because it is so consuming, um, of your thoughts of your mind, body, and spirit that once you recover, there's so much like space, left, like, what yeah. do I do? Um, and that to me was, you know, once I had recovered physically and behaviorally, I was all of a sudden feeling anxious and sad again. And I was like, what do I, 
what do I want to think about? What do I want to do with my time? Who do I want to be with? Um, and who I think, am I? Exactly. Yeah. Who am I? Because um, for a long time, I was just the girl who ate really healthy. Um, and all yeah. of a sudden, it's both terrifying um, to answer that question, but at the same time, it's a great process if you lean into it and you get to build yourself um, as yourself, not someone who's sick. Um, and I certainly love the person I've become. I love the person you are and you are becoming. Um, and so I think there is something to be said for that. Um, and also going into a little bit, I mean, we were talking about the society that we live in and how we're just constantly inundated with all of these messages that are extremely toxic. Um, how can one respond to triggers during recovery? Um, and obviously it's not, we don't live in a perfect world. We're all going to face setbacks at times, but how can we kind of avoid being, you know, sent back into a spiral where that eating disorder kind of takes over again? I think there's two categories of triggers and one category is the most, in, what are the most intense triggers for you, whoever the person is. And then the other category is what are the most frequent triggers? Because frequency is like that slow drip of water that eventually causes, you know, uh, a canyon basically. Um, and so frequency and intensity are the two kind of parameters that I would say anybody who's going through recovery could make a list of the top ones for them and then figure out what they need to do. Because for some, one person, it might be like a, a person in their life um, could be the most frequent trigger. And then for another person, the most frequent trigger could be social media. It just depends on, you know, the person, this, this illness has a lot in common from person to person, but it also is completely unique to the individual who has it. And so those triggers are going to be unique. I would say anything that leads to social comparison um, is, is toxic um, bodies and um, eating and fitness. And so those, those triggers should, you could work to actively remove no matter who you are, if you're um, working on recovery, but, but because there's so much emphasis and pride in our culture around thinness and fitness and um, food control that it's really going to be different for everybody, you know, what, what those triggers are. So yeah. I, I, that's what I would say is the two categories, freak, intensity and frequency, and then kind of like figure out a plan for yourself for each one. Absolutely. Um, I think our next question would be, what are some strategies and techniques you recommend for people who are struggling with their body image? Maybe people who haven't necessarily dieted yet, but what message would you give to people who are dissatisfied with their body? It's, it's actually, I would say it's normal to be not completely satisfied with your body because again, we have so many messages that make us 
think and, and even beyond think, believe that we can have the body we want, regardless of the amount of time we have, the regardless of the amount of access we have, regardless of our genetics. And so it's really, it's not true that we can have exactly the body we want, but what's true is that we can have health. And so, you know, I think it's really, the goal is to figure out what, if, if, if you want a healthy body and that's the goal versus you are trying to fit your body into some kind of formula that isn't really, you know, authentic for you because there's no, there's no way to have a positive body image or even a neutral, (laughs) even neutral would be a step in the right direction for a lot of people. So even in accepting a neutral body image, if you're constantly trying to, you know, fit into some kind of a, you know, ideal, like you said, that, you know, society is telling you, you should be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, love, oh, oh. I was just going <laughs> to say, I love that you say that because I know that there's been a really, um, it's interesting actually, an effort to bring in kind of a, I, it's not even a new movement, but it's kind of just a, maybe it is a new movement separate from the body positivity movement, but there's a whole emphasis now on body neutrality, which I think is really interesting because like you were saying, it's not realistic to think that we're going to be entirely satisfied with our bodies. Um, I know I'm not. And I think that can also, for someone who is going through an eating disorder or recovering from an eating disorder, Mm -hmm. that body positivity, all those messages can also be kind of triggering in some ways and toxic in some ways, because it, 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 again, it emphasizes you having to look at your body and loving and assess if you love it. And I I do love the concept of body neutrality of like, I am more, I am so much more than just my body. And like, I respect it. I respect all the things it does for me, but that's about all it needs to do. Mm -hmm. And I think kind of to what you were saying, a healthy body and you at your thinnest may not be the same. same Um, and there's often this conflation of health and thinness that Mm -hmm isn't necessarily true. Um, and also diet culture convincing us that if we look a certain way, we will be happier. Um, and I think I wish I could go back and tell myself when I was, you know, not happy with my body that having a certain like frame and figure doesn't make you happier, doesn't make you healthier necessarily. And is honestly kind of a meaningless pursuit. And um, you're never going to be satisfied. No, never. It's never enough. It never is enough. So, mm-hmm. and I think that's been one of the hardest things for me to realize in recovery, because I will look back to, you know, when I was at my worst and try to sugarcoat it and say, well, I looked so much better than, and I, I didn't actually feel that bad, but I actually have to sit down and think about it for a while and remind myself that I felt horrible Mm -hmm. mentally, physically, and I still hated my body then and was Mm -hmm. determined to continue to have an eating disorder. So Mm -hmm. I think it's hard to remember that sometimes, but it is the truth. And the other thing I was going to say was, hold on, just 
left my mind. Um, <laughs> um, hmm. Oh yeah. I was going to say that I really do agree and resonate with what you're saying about this idea of healthy. And I think it's one mm-hmm. of the hardest concepts to understand because one, we're not given really any education mm-hmm. in school or, and that's the thing I, for someone, I personally love to learn. I've always been interested in being healthy, although I haven't always been healthy. And so because I wasn't given that education in school, I sought it out for myself. And that's when I latched on to different, um, you know, cleanses and dieting trends and things like that, because they were telling me, you know, the messages were saying that they were healthy and good for you. And I had nothing else to compare it to. So who was I to know? And I think that's a real problem in our society because people have this idea of healthy as being very thin and not eating carbs. And I, like Cooper was saying, you know, being the healthy girl was her identity. Mm -hmm. Same for me. I I remember feeling like I couldn't eat Halloween candy and all of these things because that wasn't, I perceived it as not being healthy and that Mm -hmm. was who I was. So yeah, how could I act against that? And I, now I'm starting to realize that eating candy isn't unhealthy, you know, like we're allowed to do these things. It doesn't have to be so. Yeah intense. I think also kind of back to, we were talking about the conflation of fitness and health. Um, a lot of recovery is redefining what health actually is. Um, you know, at my worst, I, when I thought I was healthy because I was my thinnest, I wasn't getting my period and I couldn't sleep and I was lightheaded all the time. And then, you know, recovering and yeah, gaining weight society might tell me, Oh, you're, you're not as healthy as you were before, but I have a regular period. I don't have brain fog. Like I am the healthiest I've ever been. And I think I never even knew. I I had just always heard the message of the thinner you can get, the healthier you are. Mm. And having to go through recovery and learning, that's actually not how health works. Um, For the first time, my organs are like actually functioning the way that they are supposed to. And I'm able to think clearly in school Yeah. And there's evidence to prove it. And I think, Mm -hmm. I don't know, it's just interesting seeing how adding more food (laughs) and eating a, you know, a larger variety of foods is what's led to that. And it's, I mean, could not be more the opposite than, Mm -hmm. you know, my entire foundation of my, you know, my beliefs, my whole belief system. So yeah, it's, That's, I think that's such a key moving forward in um, prevention is working on that conflation of health and uh, our bodies and what it really means. And, you know, we don't need cleanses because we have a liver that actually cleanses our bodies. And that's the function of the liver. We, we are already set with that check, you know, so we're good. And we don't have to like come up with these tricky ways to sell people products and to be vulnerable to buying them and to buying into them because our bodies are very well equipped, very well equipped. And even like you guys were talking about, you know, things that happen to you. Yeah. I mean, our bodies are wise. Like 
for you, Cooper, right? You're, you didn't get a period because your body knew like, oh, there's not enough food in my environment for me. So I don't need to be able to procreate so I can shut this down. I'll shut this function down. It takes a lot of energy. Now we don't need energy for that. So your body just starts getting rid of functions that it considers like non-essential, basically, kind of like non-essential workers or whatever, you know, like it's, it's so wise. And as all that comes back online, the the amazing thing people will say to me, like, how am I going to, what's going to happen when I get to my healthy weight, then I'll have to stop eating as much. And I always say, no, you won't, because all those things are coming back online. Your circulation is going to bring blood all the way to your fingertips now and and you're going to get your period. And so like you were saying with homeostasis, your body doesn't want to be at, you know, extremes. There's a place where your body's happy. And I think the last thing I'll end on is as we're talking about this and thinking a lot about how my perception of my health is more focused on how I feel and Mm -hmm. it's more focused internally rather than how do I look? Um, because at the end of the day, health is not what you're seeing in the mirror. It's what you're experiencing in your body. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can, yeah. you know, internally trick yourself, like your, your mind can trick yourself mm-hmm. into believing so many things that just are not actually true. So mm-hmm. um, I also wanted to talk about how we, you know, just in general can help a friend or family member and what ways we can best support them um, when they are recovering from an eating disorder or, you know, before actually entering into recovery for an eating disorder, what, um, what is helpful? And then on the flip side, what comments and actions are just not helpful at all? Well, for sure. If you know, somebody is trying to recover from an eating disorder and you're going to into like a social setting, especially any social setting where there's food, which is pretty much every social setting. That's the other thing, you know, people will, I mean, I think as far as, you know, having compassion, people who don't have eating disorders, having compassion, like not every gathering has alcohol at it, not like kids' birthday parties and, you know, your family meal three times a day but there's food at everything. And so it's a lot harder to recover from an eating disorder in that way, because you, it's not like with alcohol or drugs where you can just say zero, I'm going to be abstinent, which is super, super hard. Of course, it's like, you have to make peace with it every day, three times a day or five times a day or six times a day, depending on how many meals and snacks you're having. And so it's, it's a lot more complicated. Um, So I think that's, you know, really important. Okay. So because food is everywhere, I think when you go into a social situation with a friend who's recovering, just like, Hey, is there anything I can do to support you? Anything you need, you know, and then they can tell you, well, I might want to step outside or if I'm, you know, get quiet, just like check in with me. Um, you know, just asking them, actually, I think when people are actively in recovery, they know themselves pretty well. And they kind of probably have a sense of what would be helpful and what wouldn't like sit next to me or sit across from me or, you know, come check on me at this point or whatever. Um, And then if, 
if you suspect somebody has an eating disorder, but you haven't talked to them with them about it, this is such a tricky one because it's, it's very fraught Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, a lot of times people aren't going to believe you if they have anorexia, they may not believe you because again, it's egocentric. They think they want it. So I would just focus on the behaviors. Like you used to seem like really like free spirited. And now like you seem very anxious a lot and you cancel plans a lot and you don't come out with us. And I don't know, I just see you cutting out foods. I don't know if it's related at all, but I'm just worried about you. And I'm wondering if, you know, you, what you think um, about it and just try to be curious with them in a loving way, because nobody should be judged. It's if they have an eating disorder, they certainly, they certainly don't want it really the real part of them, the true part of them, their soul self doesn't want an eating disorder because it's horrible. It's terrible. It's a mental prison. And so just know that they don't really want it. And I just wouldn't focus on body at all. And I would focus only on food. Like you just avoid coming out with us or you avoid like eating with us. And I'm worried about you. Well, you know, how can I help? I think there's this very interesting dynamic within our generation. Um, We're very acutely aware of these issues um, and we're all very smart and very capable. And I think we all like to believe that we are strong and can take care of ourselves and don't need outside help. But when we do struggle with these things, we blame ourselves. We think we're not smart enough to have evaded this or we should have been able to prevent this or we should be able to fix this on our own. So I guess what message do you have for our generation about the way we're talking to ourselves about these issues of feeling like we somehow messed up for feeling these things? Well, first of all, I'm sorry that it is that way because it's great that your generation is more open-minded and more um, kind of accepting of people's vulnerabilities, I think. Um, But I would say that, you know, it's kind of like just because I might know that roofs leak and my, I have a roof on my house. That doesn't mean I know how to fix my roof. I definitely don't. And it doesn't mean that my roof will never leak because I don't exactly know what I should be doing to make sure my roof never leaks. Right. I don't know. Like a wind came the other day. It was very windy. I found a tile from my roof on the floor broken. And I was like, is my roof going to leak now? I don't know because I'm not a roofer. So I think it's similar. Like, you know what anxiety is, you know what depression is, you can talk about it. You even know um, sort of how to observe it in yourself and other people. But actually what's going on on a soul level, on a spiritual level, on a psychological level that's kind of causing that and what's the work, internal work that you can do to help yourself get better that and and actually this is something that I think as psychologists and therapists, we have not done a good job of getting that information out to people because more than what a diagnosis is, no one really needs to know that. We need to know how do you deal with having 6,000 thoughts a day? 
what are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to do with anger? Is you read blogs, is anger acceptable or you should never have anger? If you meditated enough, you wouldn't have anger. What's true? So it's, it's thoughts and emotions and relationships. Those are kind of the, to me, that's the trifecta. That's what we need to be focusing on. Not so much diagnoses and observations of symptoms, because if we can figure out what to do with how we think and how we feel and how we experience life and how to strengthen our relationships, we will be less vulnerable. Even people who are genetically vulnerable will be less vulnerable. Doesn't mean we still won't have people dealing with things, um, but that's that's the conversation. That's the that's you know that's getting up on the roof and like saying, okay, well, it has. I don't even know what roofing products are, yeah. but what, I would love to take this further. But I'm kind of yeah. tapped out on the whole roof thing, but, you know. You don't, I don't even know what to call anything. I mean, that's a perfect example, right? Like somebody else might not know what to, what are the things that lead to depressive thinking? Yeah. Oh, so I think we need to be teaching this in schools, you know, yeah. teaching emotional health and because that's kind of the key and teaching people about how important relationships are. Instead of focusing on, you know, thigh gaps, we should be focusing on the importance of like how to repair a fight with a friend. How do you repair? Why would you repair? Why would you not repair? What are boundaries? Like all those things, that's actually what's going to make us stronger, you know? Our last question, which is our podcast tradition to end with this question, Um, you know, in the face of these challenging times, um, what are some of your favorite self-care practices and healthy ways to be taking care of yourself and to be coping with emotions and that sort of thing? Just personally for you, what do you enjoy doing to take care of yourself? Personally for me, I meditate. I do transcendental meditation and I also do guided meditations depending on what, (laughs) I mean, I always do TM, but I will also do guided meditations. Um, the, the number one thing for me is people. And that's also luckily aligns with the research, like mm-hmm. happiness, health, mental health, and physical health. All three are most closely linked, not to weight, not to what we eat, but to our relationships. And so for me, I would say it's mostly that it's mostly like and, and actually, even though I'm a psychologist, I'm in relationships all day, you know, like this is, these are relationships as you're working with people to recover too. Um, obviously it's a professional relationship, but in my personal life, there are like obviously relationships that, that I can talk about when I'm having a problem or I'm feeling exhausted or burned out from something or um, frustrated or whatever, and to share your blessings and to share your successes too, because the biggest part of, I think, eating disorders and also ill health is the lack of community and lack of like relationships where, you know, with eating disorders, isolating yourself and 
feeling like there's a wall between you and other people, even if, even if you're actually with people, but really like the eating disorders between you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, knowing the research on happiness and health, I know that it's relationships and, you know, that's, I also need to get outside. I need to get like the sun on me just to like feel that, um, or just to sit outside for a little bit. Um, so I would say people meditation and nature probably. I love that. And I think Lauren and I were talking earlier after school about this, um, how pre pandemic, um, with our busy schedules, oftentimes socializing and friendships and relationships felt like a nice add on when I had the free time. And now it's just completely changed for me. It's something I prioritize because I'm noticing it just, it makes me happy. Um, it, and also thinking about the time that you can actually spend with family members or friends or, you know, hobbies instead of on social media Yeah, and ways to actually connect with yourself or those around you, um, in a very real way. Um, I think that's something that I've also come to realize like where I can, because yeah, I, I will fully admit that I spend way too much time on social media. So trying to dial that back and find ways to replace that time. That's actually making me feel worse about myself and more isolated, less connected to everyone around me and my interests and, um, and instead dedicating that time to actually doing things that serve me. Thank you so much. Um, Thank you guys. I'm so impressed and so inspired by this conversation. You guys are amazing. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Thrive Podcast. With love, the Thrive Initiative.